Today's scripture reading will come from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Well, good morning. Uh, we are in our series of the story for guests with us. It's a, a book that um, puts the Bible in 32 chapters. doesn't cover everything, but you get a really good overview. And uh, we're going to continue that this morning. Have you noticed that there are more and more warning signs? everywhere. Um, you see them, uh, I, I see them, I know you see them as well. I did a little research this week, I discovered there's an organization in Michigan, it's called the Michigan Lawsuit Abuse Watch. And, and this organization, they, they track all the unnecessary warning signs, and they do this to kind of help businesses to try to prevent frivolous lawsuits. And they had several examples, and I, I put a couple of them on the screen, you can kind of see, there's, you've seen the, the silly warnings, look at this one. It says, caution, this sign has sharp edges. You needed to know that, didn't you? Do not touch the edges of this sign. If you look really good in small print, you probably can't see it. It says, also the bridge is out ahead. Uh, <clears throat> or look at this next one about ironing. I don't know if you can read that on the screen, but it says, do not iron while wearing shirt. I think somebody did that, you know, or for some reason they felt compelled to put that in there. Or on the Superman costume, there is on the warning label there, it says, wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly. <laughs> so good they put that on there. Or on the stroller, this looks like, looks like the kind that you rent or maybe borrow at some special park or something. At, at, at the bottom it says, do not put child in the bag. <clears throat> they had to put that. And I love this one. Touching wires causes instant death. $200 fine. It's like, good luck collecting that, right? And we always appreciate the warning signs with a sense of humor. I mean, sometimes you need the warning signs, but look at this one. Please be safe. Do not stand, sit, climb, or lean on fences. If you fall, animals could eat you, and that might make them sick. <laughs> or look at this one. Drive slow, see our village. Drive fast, see our judge. Isn't that good? Look at the next. Men to the left, because women are always right. <laughs> but my favorite, and this was a billboard, and it doesn't look like it's photoshopped to me. I, I think it's real, and you have to look closely to read it. At the top, it says, texting while driving kills. And at the bottom, it says, for more driving tips, text safety. <laughs> and it gives a number. A lot of unnecessary warnings out there, aren't there? You know, you've seen them, I've seen them. But we know there's times when we need to be warned. I came across this book. I didn't read it. I read about it online. It's called Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon. Not kind of leisure book you want to buy just to pick you up. But what the, the authors did, they chronicled that more than 700 deaths uh, have been uh, researched since the late 1870s. And, and some of these are like an airplane accident. Some of them are maybe a whitewater rafting accident. But more often than not... The deaths occurred because somebody went too close to the edge and they fell off. Not, not only that, 
typically it was near a sign where it said stay away or they crossed over the guardrail. In fact, 2012, 18-year-old young lady wants her picture taken next to the sign that says stay away. Tragically, the rocks gave way and she fell. Tom Myers, he worked full-time for the Grand Canyon for 22 years. He's the co-author of the book. Myers says that 90% of the deaths results from people who, quote, overestimate their own ability or underestimate the canyon. And then he said this. Those victims are ignorant by choice, paying no attention to warnings about the difficulties of hiking in the canyon and the dangers of getting too close to the edge. Ignorant by choice. That stuck out to me because I thought, you know, sometimes we need warnings. And sometimes the warnings are everywhere and we just ignore them and we choose to be ignorant by choice. I think that can even be true in Scripture. As we're reading through the story, it may be the kind of thing, I've read this story before, you just kind of check out, this one doesn't apply to me, I've already, I, I know what it's going to say. And we're seeing several different stories how God is working in the sign and it's so easy to just skip over or ignore the warning signs. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying about the prophets. This may not be your most favorite part of Scripture, and granted, there's a lot of details there that we like to skip over, but there's some important messages here because the prophets would be God's voice to the people, basically with the message, stay away, or come back. It was some kind of message that God had told them to share with the people. Look at 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 and 16. It says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. Now, if you studied the, the prophets in Scripture, you know they're called different things. They're called messengers. They're called seers. They're called uh, watchmen. But oftentimes their job was to warn the people. They turned away from God. And so God would send a message to them. You need to turn around. You need to come back. You need to stop doing what... If you don't stop, here's where it's going to lead. And so we're going to be looking at some prophets. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, ones you know, maybe some you don't know as well. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings 16. That's where we're going to start today. Last week we spent some time studying how the nation uh, of God's people was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Remember Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. And he had all these people in the north who were accustomed to traveling to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. But the challenge was now Jerusalem was in the other kingdom, the southern kingdom. He didn't want his people going to the southern kingdom because if they went back to Jerusalem... They might like it there. They might prefer it. They might not come back to the northern kingdom. So he came up with a solution. We talked about this last week, if you remember reading. He made two golden calves and said to the people, look, you don't have to travel down south. Traffic's bad. You never find a parking space. Stay right here. And so he made it convenient for the people. And what happens is that idolatry is introduced in a way that had never been in a significant way before. And what you read as you, as you go through these chapters of the story is idolatry is more and more prevalent. 
In fact, look at 1 Kings 16.29. Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He was so evil, and one of the main things is that idolatry basically had taken over. You might say it had gotten out of control. And part of the problem was his wife. Remember his wife's name? Jezebel. Not a Jezebel. She was the Jezebel. That's where we get it from. Jezebel was his wife, and she's a princess of the Sidonians, a major city in Phoenicia. She was also a big follower of the god of Baal. And she wanted to build a temple to her own god and wanted to sacrifice to him. Now, Baal, if you're not familiar or if you've forgotten, Baal is the god of fertility. The fertility of the crops. And so he was kind of related to the weather and the rain and all that went with that, but also the animals and also even with people. But not only was she just a follower of Baal, she didn't want competition. This is the Jezebel who had all these prophets of the Lord killed. So God sends Elijah with this message. And, and this is, it would be hard to be a prophet in this day because their message typically was not good news. Usually it was, you need to stop. You need to stay away. You need to come back to God. So Elijah goes to King Ahab, and here's what he says. First Kings, look at chapter 17, verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. It's going to be a drought, a big drought, a major drought. Not just no rain, not even dew on the grass in the morning so that everyone will know that the Lord is God. So Elijah gives this message to King Ahab. And one of the things that we learn as we, as we read through the story, as you read through these chapters in the Bible, it's almost like a recurring theme. It's not a good theme, but it's definitely, it's in there. And I put this on the study guide, and I want you to get this. If you get nothing else today, I want you to get this. Idolatry is the number one problem in Scripture. You ever thought about that? Idolatry. Number one problem. First two of the Ten Commandments deal with idolatry. Over a thousand verses speak to it. It's only one of the four commandments that the death penalty is attached to it. God takes idolatry very seriously. Why? Why is that such a big deal to God? Remember what we've learned and been reminded of as we've read through the story. The story is all about the glory of God. Period. It's all about the glory of God. Your story, my story, the story, it's all about Him. And that's what we see and that's what we learn. So where there's idolatry, the glory of God is not going to God. It's going to someone else or something else. And so we read a ton about idolatry throughout the Old Testament. And as we go through these prophets, you're going to see this recurring theme. But here's the danger. We can choose to be ignorant. We can just kind of skip over and think, you know, idolatry, really, I don't have carved statues. I don't bow down to images of gold. I don't think you do either. I mean, you're here at church on Sunday morning. But God takes idolatry so seriously. But is it possible that our hearts haven't changed that much over the years? And maybe the form of idolatry changes a little bit but our own inclination to follow other gods is just the same. One guy went to India and he was telling his friend when he came back 
about all that he saw, and he was showing some pictures, and one of the pictures that showed a room and how they had an idol in the room, and then all the chairs were specific, uh, specifically arranged to sort of face this idol. This guy was kind of taking it all in. It's like, you know, that just seems so otherworldly. I mean, you read about it in Bible, but are there people really today who do that? And then he went home, walked into his own family room, and he noticed how all the chairs in his own den were facing his flat screen TV. Maybe the form has just changed. So the question is this, where do you put your hope? Where do you put your hope? What holds the seed of glory in your heart? See, for so many of us, it's easy to get caught up in this world and, and to be distracted and, and, and caught off into other things that take our attention and our allegiance. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe you come home from a long day at work and you just turn on that TV and just kind of go blank. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's your boyfriend, your girlfriend, that other person that you look to to complete you. Or maybe it's money. I need money. I need more money. I need enough money to satisfy me. In other words, I'm asking money to do for me what God wants to do. In all these ways, what we're doing is robbing God of His glory. And our idols are just as real, although they may be a little more difficult for us to identify. So here's what I want us to do. I want to kind of put pause on the study of prophets and kind of uh, do a little question and answer. In the 1600s, there was an English Puritan preacher named David Clarkson. He wrote a, uh, a piece on idolatry that is uh, still relevant today. The wording is hard to read. You can catch it online. But he deals with this concept. And, and what he does is he asks some questions to kind of help us in his day. And then I kind of we've reframed those for us today. And I want to do the same thing. He wrote this about idolatry. He said, idolatry is when anything is more valued, more intended, anything more trusted, more loved, or endeavors more than anything other than God. That which we make highly valuable, we make our God. That which is most mindful of, we make our God. So let me share some questions. If you've got your study guide, there's some blanks there. I want to encourage you to, to write these questions and then think about them. Don't come with the answers like immediately. Think about this. Question number one, what are you most disappointed with right now? What are you most disappointed with right now? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your financial status. Maybe it's the government. Maybe it's your sex life. Maybe it's your spouse. Or maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your home. What are you most disappointed with? See, whatever you are disappointed with points to something about you. Instead of putting our hope in God, maybe we're putting our hope in this thing or this person. Now, some disappointment is natural. Of course, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this, this obsession, this constant disappointment in life. Maybe another way to ask that question is, what do you complain about the most? We all complain, don't we? What do you hear yourself complaining about all the time? Because what you complain about may be a way of revealing what's most important to you. Where you put your hope. Here's another question. Number two, what do you sacrifice your time and money for? What do you sacrifice your time and money for? 
That's how you know who or what your God is. Do you sacrifice your time and money for the Lord or do you sacrifice it for what? Or, or who? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's your job that's just consuming you. Or maybe it's your home. Or maybe it's your clothes and your appearance. What is it that just consumes you that you sacrifice? Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You've heard this before, and you know it's true. If you really want to know who or what is important to us, is key, is how do you spend your money? It reveals a lot. Question number three, what do you worry about? What do you worry about? What scares you? What do you think, you know, if I lost this, if I didn't have that, or this person, I, I wouldn't have a reason to live. What would that be for you? I think that's a way of showing what we worship. Question number four. I think this is a big one. Where do you go when you get hurt? This is telling. Where do you go when life is hard, when you're struggling? Do you come home after a long day and you open the refrigerator and you go for the comfort food? We have a name for it. You seek comfort. You try to fill ourselves with that. Instead of turning to God, we try to get our comfort from eating or, or maybe drinking. Or maybe you get into a fight with your spouse and you feel rejected. Where do you go? Do you go into that pagan temple of a pornographic website? Where do you go from comfort? Where do you go, as we mentioned earlier, you get home from work and it's been a tough day. All you want to do is escape, so you turn on the TV and just kind of go numb. Let somebody else do the thinking for you. Here's what I'm saying. Where you go for comfort reveals where you put your hope. It reveals these honest moments. Life is overwhelming. Where do we go? Imagine it this way. Imagine a, a, a mom of a, a kindergartner. And it's a big step, you know, to send your child off to school and, and, and your son gets this awesome kindergarten teacher like, I don't know, C. Owens, you know. <laughs> Just throw that out for an example. Awesome teacher. Your son comes home and just can't stop talking about the teacher. Loves his teacher. Loves school. Your mom would never say it. But maybe there's a little feeling of, ooh, you know, that's my little boy. And one day the mom's volunteering at school. Maybe they're out on the playground. Her son falls and hurts himself and the tears flow. And he comes running. The mom and the teacher are standing right next to each other. To whom does the little boy go? To his mom. Of course. It's an honest moment. Because that's where his heart... Does he love his teacher? Sure he does. But his heart's with his mom. It's a way of revealing... Question number five, what makes you mad? What makes you angry? Maybe your team loses and you're sour for the rest of the day or week or year. What does that say about us? Or maybe someone treats you with disrespect and that makes you angry because maybe having people's respect is that important to you. Here's number six, what brings you the most joy? What makes you laugh? And this is where it gets a little bit of, of, of a challenge because, you know, what brings us joy? Sometimes it can be nothing evil or wrong about that. In fact, those things are often gifts from God and they can be awesome things. 
But instead of allowing those gifts to draw us closer to God, sometimes those gifts become what it's all about. And we almost worship the gift instead of the giver. And we lose focus. So what are some of the things that make you happy? Last question. Whose applause do you long for? Whose approval do you seek? Who are you living for? We talked about this last Sunday night. Instead of the Summer on the Mount. You know, we can be approval addicts. We can't say no to people. They want to hurt their feelings. Or, or there's folks that we will do anything so that they will like us and, and be in good standing. Like maybe a boss or maybe a marriage or the in-laws or a parent or, or, or a child. How many parents aren't parenting? They want to be a friend of their child. They want their child to like them. Who are you living for? See, ultimately an idol is anything or anyone other than God who takes the passion, value, the hope, the glory, the commitment of your life. So really the idol then is just a cheap substitute. Just something that maybe we didn't intend to, but next thing you know it's there and our focus is off of God and it's on to this cheap substitute. Question. Be honest with me. How many of you have... From your childhood, but to this day, there is still at least one sugary cereal that you love. Anybody want to raise your hand? Mine's Captain Crunch. Okay? Don't eat it, because when I eat a bowl of it, then I feel like, what did I just eat? You know? We still love it to this day. I, I read about this guy, and I just went back to my own. He loved Apple Jacks. Apple Jacks was his. He said, you know, there's nothing in this world that a bowl of Apple Jacks wouldn't cure. Got married. They were trying to live on a budget. And his wife didn't want to, you know, cereal is expensive. And brand name cereal is really expensive. You know, the boxes seem to get smaller and smaller. And the prices are getting bigger and bigger. So his wife was trying to set up house. And so she did this thing where she bought plastic containers that she could empty all the cereal in to keep it fresh. Yeah, you're ahead of me. Because as soon as she started putting the Apple Jacks into the plastic containers, he said, it didn't taste the same, you know? And so he'll be eating, you know, something's wrong. I can't put my finger on it, you know, Apple Jacks. It just doesn't quite taste like Apple Jacks. He said, and one day he was walking down the aisle at Kroger. He came across what he calls a blasphemous product called Apple Dapples. No. His wife had done the switcheroo on him. He said, what makes it worse is it's in the bag like dog food, you know? <laughs> Cheap substitute for God. We don't think much of it because we just kind of get used to it. We don't really notice it because everybody else is eating it. Every, you know, everybody else seems to be okay. But every once in a while, in this life, what happens is we look around and say, something's not right. There's more to it than this. We're in this rat race and everybody else seems to be going and going and going. You just look around and think, something is missing. I think the reality is, is that we've settled for some kind of cheap substitute. So God addresses idolatry head on. In the prophets. And that's what we're going to read. That's what we're going to study. He speaks to the people again and again through them, warning them. And he says through Elijah to Ahab, look, this drought is coming. It's going to be bad. It's going to be long. But the purpose is for you to know that Jehovah is God. 
Here's what we need to understand in this story. Maybe we're familiar with this story, but I want to make sure you get this. Baal, we talked about this earlier, Baal was predominantly thought about the, the god of fertility, and part of that then was the god of the weather. He was the one who would bring the rain, that would bless the crops. And so do you see what God is doing by withholding the rain? Just like he did with the ten plagues? They lift up these gods, and God says, I'm going to show you who's God, and he takes the rain away. This wasn't just some guesswork on God's part. I mean, they're worshiping the God of rain, and God says, I'm going to withhold the rain. I don't think we should be surprised then in our own life when a drought comes. And it has something to do with what has become equal to God in our hearts. Because God's not going to bless his competition. Think about that. Why would he do that? We might say, well, God, would you bless my career? You know, I'm at this strategic moment and I'm about to get this new position. Maybe it's a raise or maybe it's a promotion. But our career has become everything to us. It's consumed us. Maybe even become our identity. Why would God bless that? When it's taking your heart away from Him. He's not going to do that. I don't think, God, would you bless me financially? I just need enough. I need a little bit more to be secure. I need a little bit, I need this much. I need to be making, my family, we need this much. And then we'll be content. Then we'll be secure. You see what we're doing? We're putting in money the security that God wants to give us. Why would He turn around and give it to us? When our allegiance, our attention, our focus is already off of Him. Instead, what we see is that God will oftentimes withhold that blessing. He doesn't send the rain. Here, God wants to get the attention of His people. And so, He loves them. He wants them to realize that He is God. Now, I think the opposite can also be true. Psalm 37, verse 4. I can't read this psalm without thinking of Betty Bender. This is like one of her favorite psalms. Delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that the opposite of what we just talked about? You delight in the Lord. You put Him first, and then you watch the blessings come. So Elijah says to the king, well, there's going to be a drought and he sets up this challenge, this ultimate challenge between the Lord and these false prophets. Look there in your Bibles, 1 Kings 18, verse 19 through 21. Elijah says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table. That's a long table, isn't it? So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the prophets and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? Notice the question. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. But the people said nothing. Why? Why did the people say Nothing. See, if they wanted God, they'd say, we choose God. If they wanted Baal, they'd say, we choose Baal. They said nothing. Could it be that they wanted both? We can be just like them. 
It's not that we don't want God. I mean, you're at church on Sunday. Of course you want God. One of the most dangerous things that goes on is this, this sneaking in of these other allegiances. And so we want God and whatever it is. And God says you must choose. Who's first? Who's the priority? The people said nothing. So the stage is set. So the gather at Mount Carmel, Elijah gives the instructions. Look at verse 25 and following. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call them the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout, <clears throat> shout louder, he said. <clears throat> Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. I think Elijah's enjoying this, you think? Maybe he's sleeping or must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Do you get this tragic scene that's going on and on for hours and hours trying to get the attention of these false gods shouting and dancing and cutting themselves? You think, this is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, bleeding for these, these idols? But are we really that different? How many people, maybe some in this room, have bled out to the God of alcohol or drugs? How many people, maybe some in this room, be worshiping the God of sexual pleasure and sacrifice their own marriage and intimacy the way God designed it. Maybe you've bled out for the God of electronic entertainment. You know, we've got our phones, we've got Facebook, we've got TV, and our children are right there and can't get our attention. We bleed for our gods. They're different gods, but we still bleed. Well, at Carmel, nothing happens. Elijah finally gets his turn. You remember they, they dug the trench there around the altar. He put wood there, put water out again and again and again. <clears throat> and in stark contrast to the hours and hours and all the, the shouting and the, and the bleeding, Elijah steps forward and prays a very simple prayer. Verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, that you're turning your hearts back again. Elijah saying, this is not about me. This is about God. So everybody will know that the Lord, Jehovah, is God. And you're really saying that this is not about revenge? This is not about Elijah saving face. There's no, I told you so here. Everything is so that the people's hearts will be turned to the one true God. Look at verse 38. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Once again, the story is about the glory of God. 
I said, there's one thing I want you to get. <clears throat> Actually, there's two. And here's your other blank, the last one. What helped me in understanding and, and seeing this story from the, through the lens of idolatry is that idolatry is not just offensive. It hurts God. It's hurtful to Him. It's not just that it's wrong. It cuts Him. Because He loves us. Now that's our theme for VBS this week. He's jealous for our hearts. The prophet Ezekiel says that when we give our hearts to another, to God it's like being cheated on. At the end of the story, if you're reading this chapter, we read about a prophet named Hosea. Hosea is told by God to go and marry this prostitute named Gomer. If marrying this woman of ill repute is not enough, her name is Gomer, and that's just that's strike two. But think about this. If you're in a part of our, our Wednesday night study that the world may know, it's been very enlightening. In fact, it just dovetails with the whole reading of the story. So I encourage you to come if you've not been. Temple prostitution was rampant. When we talked about Baal was the god of fertility, it was taught and believed that as a woman, if you wanted to have children, if you wanted to be fertile, the way to do that was to give yourself first at the temple. So for, for Hosea to go and find a prostitute, do, do, do you see the context here? It's not necessarily the red light district. Every woman, I say every, not every, but it was more and more had prostituted themselves at the temple of this idol. So God says to Hosea, you go get her. So Hosea does that. It doesn't make sense to him, but he obeys. And you know the story if you read through it, if you remember before. One day he comes home, Gomer's nowhere to be found. His heart sinks. He goes and looks for her. He finds her where he doesn't want to find her. He's devastated. What, are you, what am I supposed to do now? You told me to marry this woman, this prostitute. I did, and now he said, I want you to go back. I want you to buy her a second time. I want you to show your love for her again. I want you to bring her back home. Why? Why? Do you see the parallel here? Hosea 3.1, God says, so the people will know how much I love them. That's it. Sometimes when we offend God, we think of His wrath, we think of His anger, we think of His judgment. And we should. But also think of His pain. He loves you so much. And what He knows is when you go into that temple and you prostitute yourself, whatever temple it is, it is not the life God wants for you. You sold your soul. You bought a lie. And not only is it wrong, but the God of heaven is weeping more than anybody because it hurts Him so. And His message is, I want you back. If you go, His message still is, I want you back. I want you home. I want you with me. So here's the warning from the prophets. There is nothing and there is no one that is to sit on the throne of your heart. 
So if there is someone or something, listen to the prophets. Turn back. Come home. I'm going to stand and worship and sing this song. Maybe for you it's to confess a sin. Maybe for you it's just a prayer of encouragement. Or if today you want to name the name of Jesus. Yeah, we've got a backdrop here and there's the Baptist Road, but you watch how fast we can tear this down. Let today be your day. Just stand and sing.